Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Stagecraft is brought to you by the Geffen Playhouse. Now on stage and extended until December 17th, Tyne Daly shines in Chasing Memories, a different kind of musical. With songs written by legendary lyricists Alan and Marilyn Bergman, Tyne Daly stars as a woman not quite ready to let go of the life she's loved and the love of her life. Norman Lear declares it a touching, luscious, triumphant piece of theater, and Broadway.com exclaims, it's a complete joy to watch. Don't wait. Visit geffenplayhouse.org for tickets. You're listening to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you in-depth interviews with the creators and stars of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, in London, and around the country. I'm your host, Variety's theater editor, Gordon Cox. Are you ready, kids? SpongeBob SquarePants has hit Broadway. A new musical based on Nickelodeon's long-running animated series is currently in previews with an entirely original storyline and a score by a head-turning and widely disparate list of songwriters that includes John Legend, T.I., Panic at the Disco, and the late David Bowie. After a run in Chicago in 2016, the musical opens at the Palace Theater December 4th. We have four of the show's creators and stars here in the studio to tell us all about bringing SpongeBob from screen to stage, starting with director Tina Landau, known for shows including Floyd Collins and Superior Donuts, and the writer Kyle Jarrow, who wrote the script for the 2003 downtown buzz magnet A Very Merry Unauthorized Children's Scientology Pageant, and the creator of Valor, the new TV show on the CW. Tina and Kyle, thanks for being here. Thanks Thank for having us. Thank you. Tina, this project started with you, but you didn't know the show before you got involved. What prompted you to consider working on it, and how did you come up with your approach to it? Yeah, well, I, I knew of the show. I mean, who doesn't know SpongeBob, of course? Of course. But, um, yeah, I got a call from my agent saying that Nickelodeon was interested in um, having directors come in to pitch ways of conceiving of putting spongebob on stage with because yeah. it's a hard thing to get your head around right like how oh, do you impossible. put SpongeBob on stage? impossible and 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 they weren't convinced they were going to do the show they just wanted to know is there a way to and what would that look like and when i first got the call my agent said are you interested and i said no um right. really quickly that, oh yeah wow. oh yeah cool and he said well, 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 well wait a minute they're not interested in doing a theme park big mascot head costume thing was that your was that your first yes. thought they were like that they yes. want a theme park and i don't want to do that well yeah my first thought was yeah a big rubbery poofy foamy yellow sponge costume on stage right and i was like no not going there mm-hmm. um 
and it, and it turns out I haven't had to. Right. Um, but uh, but my agent said, well, hold on a minute. Steve Hillenberg, who's the creator of the show, comes from this background of experimental and animated film, and he's a marine biologist, and he said that, and he doesn't love Broadway musicals, and so he said he would allow the property to be considered as a Broadway musical if it had a, quote, indie spirit. And that's those were the magic words my agent said to me on the phone. I was like, oh, well, let me think about what that would mean. And, um, you know, as soon as I freed myself from, you know, my first kind of bad impression of what this could be, and allowed myself to imagine alternate ways and different kinds of performance techniques that could be involved and different musical styles. I started creating in my head a, a, a kind of piece, a show, an event that would appeal to me. And I just followed along that, pitched those ideas, and was fortunate that they selected me to follow through on them. And there was a very specific episode that was kind of your way in, as I understand it. Tell us about that. Yes, it's Idiot Box. Um, which is uh, an early episode in which SpongeBob and Patrick receive a box with a TV in it. And, you know, most people would throw out the box and keep the TV and watch TV. But um, they discover that they, in fact, want to throw out the TV and keep the box. Because with only the box and their imagination, they can create anything and go anywhere. And... I thought not only is that what theater traffics in most powerfully, but um, the the texture of a cardboard box. You know, now here we are, we're doing this, you know, big, gloriously designed musical, but somewhere at the center of its DNA is the cardboard box. And in fact, we do have a bunch of cardboard boxes hmm. in it. Right. And so you got the gig, and then you yeah. needed an original story, and then Kyle came aboard. Kyle, tell us about uh, how you got involved. Yeah, I mean, I had the great advantage of when I came aboard, I could see what Tina's vision of indie SpongeBob was. So I didn't have the moment of hesitation, because when I took the meeting, I instantly understood the aesthetic, which is great, because most projects, it doesn't work like that. Um, so that was really inspiring to walk into something where the aesthetic was clear, the approach was clear, and then it was just about figuring out a story. Was it clear when you joined that you needed an original story as opposed to basing it on one or multiple that episodes? Was, that was sort of the brief from moment one. Certainly when I got involved. I don't know when you guys yeah, agreed no, no, no. on that. But. That, that. That was always, from the get-go, it was always, you know, Nickelodeon was great because they said, if we are just going to repeat something that we've seen or done on TV or film, why do theater? Like, yeah. let's, let's, or... And, and those episodes, we should say, are what, 11 minutes yeah, long? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be yeah. very hard to expand but, them anyway, yeah, if you wanted even, to. Even so, the interest was always, we are going to do this project if we can reawaken the brand in some new way, because there's no other reason to do it. So it was always original story. Right, right. So, yeah, and, I mean, so the the super fun challenge was, here's a universe of characters, here's you know a catalog of hundreds of episodes, and here's an aesthetic that Tina's developed for the stage. What is a story that combines all those elements? The the big thing that we knew from moment one is we needed real stakes and a real emotional core. Because, you know, a two-hour musical, you know, you need to have that center in a way that you don't in an 11-minute cartoon. But we also wanted to keep the manic, surrealist, comic pacing of the 11-minute episode. So 
that was, we sort of approached it with that challenge. Like, what kind of a story gives you both? And what we arrived at is a story that really is about this whole community. And what that allowed us to do is intercut from one character storyline to another character storyline. So the, the scenes can be short and have that manic comic energy, but all of those storylines can intercut and add up to create you know, a big story, overarching story with a, with a thrust. Um, and what is the story? Tell us. So uh, I like to describe it as Armageddon meets Our Town meets Spongebob. What the story actually is, is you've got this community, Bikini Bottom, where all these characters live, and there's a volcano on the outskirts of town called Mount Humongous. And uh, early in the show, the ground starts rumbling. Sandy the squirrel, who's a scientist, has a seismograph, of course, as all scientists obviously do. Right? And realizes, oh no, like it's going to erupt, and it's going to erupt at sundown tomorrow, and when it does, this town is going to be obliterated. So what the show is about is how everyone reacts to that. You know, some people lose themselves in fear. Some people try to exploit the situation. Some people, led by SpongeBob, decide we have to try to save our town. Others say we got to just abandon our town. So it really ends up being a story about how a community deals with crisis, how they come together or not, how differences that don't feel like they matter before a crisis suddenly start seeming like they matter when they shouldn't. Um, And ultimately, for us, I think the heart of the story is that where we get to by the end is that these characters all realize that what they need to do to deal with crisis is come together. That's actually how they will make it through. On the way there, a lot of hijinks, a lot of craziness, and a a lot of manic, surrealist comedy. So I think we figured out that balance. This is is a question for both of you. How do you think of... (laughs) The balance. Well, that wasn't a joke. That wasn't a punchline. I don't know the way you said it was. <laughs> um, how do you how do you think of the balance between uh, kids and adults? Because SpongeBob has fans in all of all ages. And how do you how did you think of sort of pitching the show toward that extremely broad demographic with yeah. a lot of different components? You know. We never set out to make a quote-unquote children's show or children's theater. We always thought the kids are a built-in audience. And we, we want the broadest audience possible. And we kind of have layered in different things that we think will appeal to different generations. That actually, you know, it has taken some work to calibrate, but... We had a great example of how to make it work for seasons and seasons on television. Yes, examples and people who have created that show and written it. And, you know, we were very... Did you talk to a lot of those people? Well, we had a couple of trips to California to the studio where um, they were really just sharing sessions. They were, you know, brainstorming or us asking questions or seeing how they storyboarded. None of it was... um, what's that word, like prescriptive. Mm -hmm. They weren't telling us how to do anything, but it was just useful to be in that environment and hear how their brains work. We haven't yet talked about the score, which is really unusual and uh, includes a huge array of well-known names. Um, Tell us about how did that idea come about and then how do you get all those people on board to do it? It was one of the very first ideas I had going into my very first pitch meeting that we previously talked about because... Um, I had watched the show some in preparation, doing research, and realized, oh, there's a whole mashup of genres that occur on the show. So Sandy sings in a country-western style, and SpongeBob fantasizes being a hard rocker at some point. So 
you you get all that on the show, and then I listened to the soundtrack album for the first film, and I loved the songs that the, that the Flaming Lips wrote, and Ween, and Weezer, and right. Wilco, and and I thought that's what I want to hear in the theater, and this is a property that invites discongruity and juxtaposition. Um, yes, the world needs to be orally cohesive, but within that, it asks for, it begs for um, a clash of genre and style, and and that's what makes it fun and SpongeBobian. Kyle, for you as a writer, how how does the way the these actors embody these characters kind of influence what you've ended up with on the page. You know, when we went out to L.A. to talk to the animators, I remember seeing the way that they write the show, which is that they storyboard it visually first. So they do the visual gags, the physicality of it first, and then they write the dialogue. And, you know, I thought to myself, like, wow, how can we bring, is there a way to bring at least a semblance of that process to the theater and that's a little bit what we did, because I hadn't written a word when we had this physical workshop. So I just observed, and and then sort of as the process has gone on, have observed and have tried to integrate physicality, you know, physical bits that they work out in the workshop setting, get integrated into the script. And I've tried to keep that, I think we both have, tried to keep that sort of organic process where it, it never... It never becomes too verbal. It never leaves behind the physicality of the performances. Um, and also, you know, with writing, I think a lot of it is you just absorb stuff. And then when you sit down in front of your computer, that's in your head. And so, honestly, when I was writing the script, I was seeing Ethan as SpongeBob. Right. Can I just point out that you just said absorb stuff? Oh, oh yeah, he's absorbent. <laughs> <laughs> But nice, oh. you know, wonderful to be able to see Danny as Patrick and Ethan as SpongeBob yeah. when writing and imagine their physicality, know how they embody the characters. Again, a great privilege that most writers don't get on most projects. And what did you learn from the Chicago production? And what then, what do you bring with you from that into this new Broadway version? Man, so many things. You know, I, you I, answer I'll let first. you talk about story... Um, you know, I was fortunate in that I stayed in Chicago the whole run and just kept going back and ended up with this tome of things that I thought could be better. You know, I knew could be. And a lot of that came from watching the show. A lot of it came from listening to audiences in that kind of old George Abbott way of standing in the back and where do they laugh and where do they seem restless. And, um, you know, so my hit list coming back was very large, both in terms of story things that, that Kyle can say, but also upping the design, we changed order of some songs, we um, really kind of enhanced a number of the production numbers in Act 1. Upping the homemade quality of the design? There's a it, It's a very sort of homemade aesthetic for being a big fancy Broadway musical. Yes, I, I'd say we upped homemade, but also kind of the invention of how things occur. We, we really tried to focus on that was okay, but it, was it really surprising? Did it really take that object and turn it on its head in the right way? And we just looked at every moment that way. Right, and right. story-wise... Yeah, I mean, story-wise, um, I'd say sort of three big areas. One is structure. We did a lot of restructuring, particularly in the first act. 
you know, the beginning of any story is really important and how quickly we get into the main story of this volcano. Um, frankly, we just wanted to get into it faster. And so that was a, a big change. Um, there were a couple of storylines that were kind of tertiary storylines in Chicago that we realized were great, really popped. And we just wanted to give a little more meat to them. So that was a big piece of it. Like what? Um, you know, one in particular is there's a father-daughter relationship, Pearl Krabs and her, her father, Eugene Krabs. Uh, and, you know, it, you know, it was there in Chicago, but we didn't, we hadn't dug super deep. They had one great song, um, and the audience just went nuts at that song every night. It's this song where he's singing about how much he loves money. She's singing about how much she loves this rock band. And we really see this father-daughter who cannot communicate. They don't hear each other. Um, and we realized that's such a universal story and, and sort of touching and sweet. So that was a story we really bolstered. Um, but I would say that the biggest two changes that we've made are we've made it funnier, or at least we've tried. I think we have. Yeah. Um, and we've also made it deeper. Um, and, and like I said, we in addition to those things, there are more kind of wow moments within songs. And also, we've also um, upped the power of Plankton as, That's right, as yeah. villain. Um, because... You, you know, need a good we, antagonist. Yeah, yeah, and we realized, yes, he was... The name of the character is Plankton, pl- by the way, for people who yes, maybe Plankton. are not familiar. <laughs> yes, yeah. the name of the character, his full name is Sheldon J. Plankton. I did not know that. And yes. he is a Evil one-celled genius. organism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see it. Um, thank you. Thank you both. Thanks thank for being you. here. Thanks. And, Our pleasure. Uh, we'll see you soon. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks. That was director Tina Landau and writer Kyle Jarrow talking about the Broadway debut of the upbeat invertebrate SpongeBob SquarePants. Next up, we have SpongeBob himself, Ethan Slater, and Lily Cooper, who plays the scuba diving squirrel scientist Sandy Cheeks. Stagecraft is brought to you by the Geffen Playhouse. Now on stage and extended until December 17th, Tyne Daly shines in Chasing Memories, a different kind of musical. With songs written by legendary lyricists Alan and Marilyn Bergman, Tyne Daly stars as a woman not quite ready to let go of the life she's loved and the love of her life. Norman Lear declares it a touching, luscious, triumphant piece of theater, and Broadway.com exclaims, it's a complete joy to watch. Don't wait. Visit geffenplayhouse.org for tickets. Hi, Ethan and Lily. Thanks for being here. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Ethan, you were one of the first actors to join the cast, and you've been with it ever since. Um, Where were you when you first tried out? And tell us about that first workshop that you were involved in. Yeah, I... I am lucky enough to have been one of the one of the original Movement Lab members, uh, and that was like five years ago. It was yeah? Five years ago, okay. it started in May of 2012, and I was actually at Vassar College at the time with Lily. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Then you went to college together. We went to yeah. college together. Yeah. We were just a couple years apart, yeah. and I had applied for an apprenticeship program to work at Shakespeare on the Sound over the summer, mm-hmm. um, and for that for that. Uh, uh, application you had to audition so that audition led to an audition for their main stage show which led to the casting director calling me and saying um we have something coming up it's called the untitled tina landau project we think you might be the right physical shape for it um and and there was no it was the untitled tina landau project not the untitled spongebob no so you had no idea what that was right the role was bubble burt right um (laughs) 
the, uh, the only thing that really tipped me off was that the sides were from an episode of SpongeBob. So I was like, ah, that is a really familiar scene. How many shows does uh, the character Bubble Burt eat something that might explode when the sun sets? That seems like SpongeBob. Right, right. Um, so I went in for the audition, and it was like it was just a physical audition. I right. I did the I did the sides. I actually didn't try to do a SpongeBob voice, which was uh, risky, but I think paid off. <laughs> and then um, and then I did like a physical comedy routine where I was trying to put on a sweater, but it was rebelling against me. And then I did a a dance to Billie Jean, but um, there was a bee that was trying to sting me the whole time. And there was no, and then for the workshop itself, there was no script or anything. No there was, script. It was just a physical, you guys figuring stuff out. Exactly. It was just, um, you know, how do we take these characters and without prosthetics, without foam figures, just as a human in, at the time, gray sweatpants and probably a gray shirt, because right. that's my uniform, um, right. just, just be up there and look like SpongeBob. So it was about squaring off the shoulders and I figured out how to walk the walk, which is just sort of a, a hinge. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, figuring out how to embody it. So there was some text, but it wasn't a book. It was just a couple of scenes to, to play off right. of. And from what I understand, you drew on, or I guess all of you, as you were working on it, drew on Abbott and Costello and oh, sort of physical yeah. comedians from history. Totally. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's like the thing that it, it feels like this show is as much based on SpongeBob as it is on the classic physical comedy geniuses you know of the early 20th century of charlie chaplin and buster keaton and these sight gags and these these um physical comedy routines and actually you know now that i say that it's like the the animated show is also based on that on the laurel and hardy and the abbott and costello and, and these these pairings of comedians the spongebob and patrick um right right yeah so, so but you know i hope not to jump another question but people always ask like how much spongebob do you watch and I've probably right. watched every episode at this point. Cause I, was that true at before? Least once. I had seen uh, at least half of the episodes before that. Okay. But there are a lot of episodes. There are a lot of episodes. There's it's been on lot. for almost 20 years. It's been and on for a long time. Lily, you joined for the Chicago production last I summer. I did, yeah. And what was your... How much? How much of a SpongeBob watcher were you? I was a I was a pretty big fan. I mean, I grew up like prime SpongeBob era. I was born in the '90s, and uh, I watched it as a kid, and still do. I always say that I have about like ten or fifteen episodes on my DVR at any given time. And is that true right it's now? It's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, just in case I have a moment to do some uh, work research and sure. uh, <laughs> <laughs> say that I'm, uh, you know, doing work at home. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was a big fan. I always doodled and. I would always doodle SpongeBob characters and the pineapple and all that when I was like in junior high. So it was a it was a big part of my life. And then for you, how is how how do you turn into a you know scuba diving squirrel? How yeah. does that? Well, I think it's something that I'm literally quite literally still exploring and discovering. Um, the thing that made it easier is that Sandy actually does walk on her hind legs, so <laughs> I can walk like I do normally in everyday life. <laughs> Um, instead of like scurrying up trees, but, uh, she is, I think what's exciting about this project is that we're bringing the human traits out of these characters. So we're sort of turning them into the human versions of them. And I'm finding my inner squirrel while, you know, exploring Lily Cooper's version of Sandy. So 
finding her physicality also has a lot to do with her voice and her... You know, I was just going to ask about the voice because yeah. obviously voice acting is a huge part of SpongeBob totally. in any animated film. How, how do you think about... A- approximating that voice or not approximating your voice? How did you find it? Totally. So one of the defining features of Sandy's voice specifically is that she's from Texas. So she has a little Texas twang. She also has sort of like a pingy, high-pitched level to it. And I've explored that part register of my voice. And uh, a very important thing that Tina, our director, uh, really instills in us is that we're not trying to directly replicate the actors' voices who do it on the show, but just sort of um, discover the DNA of their characters and explore their voices through our own. So I, I try not to imitate exactly because... Like we talk about, if we are just imitating, we won't be succeeding in any way. We need to embody them and put their voices in our voices and sort of combine the two. So I definitely have a Texas twang and I definitely have... Can you have do a little like, of it right now? Well, she she uh, she's a karate chopping squirrel and she has a more of a high-pitched yeah. kind of twang to her. So that's And Ethan, do Spongebob? It's just like a little bit. It's a subtle little thing. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it goes... It, it varies the range. And the cool thing is we, we have range to it, you know? Like, we can right. get high up yeah. in here and when we're excited, but we can actually be really grounded and yeah. have real conversations, too. Right. I, think, I think that's like a, a, a push and pull that we've been playing with throughout rehearsal and throughout the years of development is where we fully drop in. Um, and, you know, if you ask Tina, it's... It, that's one of the seems to be one of the most important things about the show is dropping into that character and finding the grounded the grounded center of it. You've both kind of talked about this a little bit, uh, just yeah. in terms of finding kind of archetypal characteristics or like getting to the heart of them. What for each of you is the the heart that has nothing to do with you know being a squirrel and being a sponge? Yeah. Well, uh, one of mine and my characters that's really prominent in the story that we're telling is that um, Sandy is a land mammal, and she's in this place where she is truly the alien to everyone else, and she's not like anyone else. Mm. So she's an outsider, and not everybody really understands where she's from and who she is. So that is an archetypal characteristic that I think people can relate to in especially our present day society. And so I think that's one of the strongest forces that she's dealing with in the story of our show. And Ethan, what's what's essential SpongeBob for you? Um, essential SpongeBob is his optimism and how he sees the world and he sees the world as this beautiful place that could always be as best as it's ever been. And you both did it in Chicago. What was mm-hmm. the that experience like in terms of the audience reaction? And you must have talked to a fair number of SpongeBob fans who yeah. have oh, seen yeah. the show. What how 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 tough of a sell did you find it to say, uh, I'm a sponge and I'm a squirrel? Yeah. I it was it was an amazing experience doing it in Chicago for a number of reasons. Totally. But one of the amazing things about it was that we got to interact with fans, Broadway fans and SpongeBob fans alike. And for all of them, it seems it was an easy sell. You know, as soon as we arrived on stage and said our lines and, you know, we're not wearing um, 
you know, the costumes we're wearing are all yeah, actually, brilliant David sort of, Zinn costumes. We should sort of describe, you're wearing basically a tie and a sweater, right, Yeah, Ethan? well, in Chicago, and I was wearing a tie and a sweater vest. Right, it's going to be right. a little bit different on okay. Broadway, but it's yeah. still sort of that you've sleek. Got the little sh- you've got the little shorts, yeah. too. square and pants. And you're, what are you, you're wearing the, the uh, Lily, the, what yeah, am I trying so to say, helmet. Instead, yeah. Right, so um, in order for Sandy to breathe underwater, she's in an astronaut helmet. But sure. on stage, you know, it's sort of hard to do that because you wouldn't really be able to hear anything that I say. So what I love about the design is that we keep her silhouette. So instead of an astronaut helmet, she has an afro. Um, and she still has yeah, the little, cool. the iconic flower on her afro. And uh, a white jumpsuit, so it's very astronaut costume-esque. Tina talks a lot about the casting process of this and, like, needing to see the essential quality of the character and also see the silhouette. And, like, that was really important to her. Um, and so for me, um, you know, I'm sort of square. I'm short. Um, for those who can't see me, uh, and I've got wide shoulders. So it only takes a little bit of maneuvering for me to make myself look a lot more square. Um, Danny is, you know, tall and he's a big guy and Lily is like tall and athletic. And so like next to each other, we like, we fit the silhouettes. Um, but more than that, I think, and not to, you know, speak of myself, but I feel like we like sort of embody the characteristics of these characters innately. And, and there's like, there's something in all of us that is immediately these characters. And so the fans in the fans in Chicago, like felt that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had a lot of people who came up to us and they were like, you know, we we were unsure. Like we sort of were going to see this and we weren't sure whether we were going to like it. Like, ah, and then, you know, five minutes in, they bought it. And, and I think or that that's... seconds in, even. Well, uh, New York is going to get a chance to see it. Uh, you guys start preview. You're in the middle of tech. This isn't going to air for a couple weeks, but you're in the middle of tech right now. So oh, yeah, they're about yeah. to go into preview. So break a leg next Thank week. Thank you so and, much. Uh, it's exciting. It opens December 4th at the Palace. Thanks, guys. Come check it out. Yeah. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks. Thank you. That was Ethan Slater and Lily Cooper, two of the stars of SpongeBob SquarePants, now playing on Broadway at the Palace Theater. That's all for this episode of StageCraft, but be here next time when I talk to director Julie Taymor and playwright David Henry Wong about their new production of M. Butterfly. Until then, see you at the theater. StageCraft is brought to you by the Geffen Playhouse. Now on stage and extended until December 17th, Tyne Daly shines in Chasing Memories, a different kind of musical. With songs written by legendary lyricists Alan and Marilyn Bergman, Tyne Daly stars as a woman not quite ready to let go of the life she's loved and the love of her life. Norman Lear declares it a touching, luscious, triumphant piece of theater, and Broadway.com exclaims, it's a complete joy to watch. Don't wait. Visit geffenplayhouse.org for tickets. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together 
we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.